You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 3800 Marlton Pike, Pensacon, New Jersey. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. I'll read the part that, that was interesting to me. Um, they just say it over and over again, God, you don't need me. 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 But somehow you want me. Eight million people have watched this video. And it's such an earworm. If you heard it, you, you'd be singing it and I'd be sorry. Because I don't want this, this idea too deeply planted in your heart. That God doesn't need you. Um, it falls into this common practice that many uh, of the worship that pop Christianity spins out. It's an overemphasis on unworthiness. All right. This is this is my this is the hate part of my. I love it because it's so catchy. I hate it because it's bad theology. Uh, somehow, that somehow you want me. I don't understand how. There's nothing desirable about me, but you still want me. Um, you know, it, I don't know if that's good news. You know, kind of like it's kind of this theology that sometimes we call worm theology. You know, that I'm just I'm just a worm. Just a terrible worm. And uh, God is doing something despite me. Despite me, God is doing something. Now, I may be projecting onto this song that 8 million people have watched with an oversensitive theological ear, and this might be your jam. So if 10th Avenue North is your jam, I'm sorry. Uh, but, but I don't think we need to get this song stuck in our heads. God does want us to feel that, that way about ourselves God does not want us to feel that way about ourselves all of the time. Maybe for a moment, just long enough to repent, which means to turn around. But, but that sense of unworthiness should only last a moment. Uh, and, and, and hopefully if you're following Jesus, he turns you around and, and it, you never feel that way again. That's Jesus' will for you. Uh, it says in, in 1 John 2.28, And now, dear children, Continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. That's what God wants for us. Or also in Hebrews 4.16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. One more, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Is Christ there? Is Christ here? New creation. And we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. And unfortunately, I think that 10th Avenue North is regarding themselves and us when we sing their song from a worldly point of view. They're not wrong. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But not, that's not the end of the story. It's the beginning. And, and for some of us, that happened a long time ago. God really does want us. That's what 10th Avenue North is marveling at. It's beautiful. Yes, God wants you. Yes, that is amazing. And I love how they're trying to get at it. I think I, that, that's what I love about this song. Yes, God really does want you. If you don't believe that, sing the want part of this song. Yes, but, but after that, I think, I think God needs us too. This is, this is the point of what I want to say. God has chosen us to fulfill God's purposes on earth. From the beginning of time, God has commissioned humanity in that touch. 
on the Sistine Chapel. From the beginning of time, God made us for the purpose of making love happen here on earth. That was the plan from the beginning. And it comes to its fullness in Jesus and the new creation that God wants to make us who we are in Christ. That's the, the most damning part of this catchy tune. They get us to keep saying, you know, God, you don't need me. God, you don't need me. God, you don't, don't need me. But God does need us. God needs you. I need my wife, for example. All of us who have children here today need her too because Gwyneth is in the back watching the, the, the kids and making a safe place so that they can experience our little village centered on Jesus. But I need her even more. I need Gwyneth even more than you. Anyone who is married or, or ever really loves someone knows what I'm talking about. And I, and I think this goes beyond romantic love. So I'm talking about anyone who has really ever loved anyone knows what it, is, what it means to need someone. Uh, there's a lot of practical ways that I need Gwyneth. We've made a life together that doesn't work if we don't keep our agreements with each other. I need her to keep her word. I need her to keep up her side of the bargain, etc. But it's deeper than that. I need her, like, at some core level that I can't totally express without poetry. And I haven't written a poem yet that satisfies my desire to express that need to her. We need each other to survive, like we were just singing with Hezekiah Walker and Quran earlier. When we love each other, us humans, we're doing the thing that is, that is most deeply seated in our personhood. When we love, we are acting out of what is deepest inside of us. And everyone believes this, no matter what your religious affiliation is. Everyone knows that love is at the center of the universe. Love is probably our deepest need. But, and, and love, but love unites us in a way that, that, that's hard to separate, doesn't it? How, how, is, how is Gwyneth meeting my need? How is your closest friend meeting your need? All you dads out there, how are your children uh, meeting your needs? And all you children of parents, which is everyone, uh, how, how are your parents meeting your need for love? Like, how does it work? In, in a relationship of love, how can we tell where your love ends and my love begins? Aren't I, aren't I meeting your need for love by letting you love me, too? Isn't that an important piece of the love puzzle to receive the love that is being given you? When I receive the love that you can give instead of the love that I prefer or want, when I actually receive the love that you're best at giving, I am loving you probably better than any act of love that I could do kind of uh, offensively. <laughs> or, or when I'm giving the love, receiving the love that you can give uh, might be the, the best work of a love relationship. You know, especially when I have some other desire or preference. I wish you did it this way. I wish you were this perfect way to love me. I wish, I wish that your default mode for giving love was my default mode for receiving love. But that is not the case in any love relationship, romantic or otherwise. I am becoming Gwyneth's lover, not just myself. I'm becoming the person who fits to her. And in the process, I become my best self, which may not be in instantly recognizable 
to whatever pure <laughs> essence of Benjaminness was conceived in my mother's womb, as if that is even a thing. I'm not sure. So you see, what I'm trying to illustrate is that love is utterly reciprocal. Love is, is definitely give and take, but, but not just in the sense of taking turns, though that is a fine approximation and probably part of the process, but there's more. Love is becoming the lover of the one you love, learning that person and shaping yourself to the love that they give best. And so it's in that sense that I think that God needs us. If I said, if I said to Gwyneth, I don't need you, but I do want you, wouldn't that suck? Wouldn't it, you're just my consumer choice? And in, and in many cases, I do think that, that love relationships are reduced to choice. It, it would be unloving to tell her that, and, and it wouldn't be true. Conversely, if I told her that I, that I needed her for practical purposes of our life together and the gratification of my desires, and I didn't actually want her, but she'll do, I, I, I would just be a user, and she would have a terrible life, and so would I. If God's love is anything like our love, which I think that it is, and God is the source of love, and that's why I think that, that our love is in some way like God's love. It says in 1 John that God is love. Then I think that our love says something about God's love. And C.S. Lewis meditated this, on this in his book, The Four Loves. Would someone read that to us? To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken, it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. That rings true, right? I think you got it. And I think we've experienced it. With a lover, with a child, with a parent, with a friend, we know this to be true. And now in a minute I'm going to apply this to the God of all creation. And for some reason... That might feel shocking. 10th Avenue North fans might say that it is applying human thinking to God and contradicting certain parts of the Bible. Because we have this very pervasive sense of God as invulnerable, unchanging, immovable. And there are passages in Scripture that might push us to, to have that idea of God. So here's my warrant for doing what I'm doing, for applying our sense of what it means to love someone, what it means to need someone and want someone, and, and, and how that love is kind of interlocked and inseparable and a, a whole mutuality mess that can't be deciphered. I think that our relationship with God is like that too, and I'm applying it. So here, here's my warrant from Ephesians 5. Someone else read this one. It's longer. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. 
Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This passage has been used for so much harm, I almost hesitated to bring it up. Power-hungry men have used this passage to subject womankind to their will and completely miss the point of the passage. They completely miss it. And we do this all the time in Scripture. It's, it's a mess. This passage is about that reciprocal, mutual, vulnerable love I was describing before. This is what C.S. Lewis was talking about, too. Submit to one another. Give your heart to someone else. Don't lock it up in a coffin. Don't just use somebody. It's mutual. The two are one body. You know, Paul definitely has some patriarchal assumptions that come through in the language, but I think he makes himself clear that, that this is a profound mystery, that I am talking about Christ and the church. In context... This is a revolutionary statement. Submit to one another. That's what he's talking about. In our context, we have some hurdles to get over about male headship and what a relationship looks like. What does it mean to respect a husband? What does it mean to lay down your life for a wife? Uh, what do marriages look like? You know, lots of hurdles that we can get over, but I hope that we can get over them right now. Because Paul is, is doing something. He, he's making a larger argument that gets to the root of humanity. He's making a point about who we are. It goes back to the foundation of creation to describe the new reality that God is making with us. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's a quote from Genesis chapter 2. We are the church he's talking about. That's us. And this kind of thinking uh, is the kind of thinking I want us to do as I conclude with the creation story. Paul looks at the experience of marriage and he relates it to the union of Christ and the church. He's starting from the lived experience of people who are married. And he's not even married himself. And he says that it has something to do with the nature of the universe. How does he get there? He's doing theology in a way that's starting from his experience of love. Oh, this is what it's like for Christ to love the church. This is it. Everything that, that is made is revealing something about God. Christ is all and is, it, as, and is in all. So he's, he's making this leap, and we can make leaps like that too, I think. Uh, this is a great mystery, he says. And this is the heart of mysticism, to have an inner experience of God and apply our living to our thinking. That's what Paul is doing, and I, and I think we can do it too. 
He says, mutual reciprocal love is at the heart of creation. And because Jesus demonstrated it on the cross, it must be there at the beginning of all things. And it is. So here it is in in Genesis 2.23. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That word woman means like from man, ha-adam. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Just heard that in Paul. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. That's the the most important part right there, I think. That's what creation is about. Good news, that feeling of no shame is revealed in marriage again. Paul sees it, and I hope you can too. And we can spin that out to all of our love relationships, even our love relationship with God. That shameless love is the destination of everyone who is in Christ. God's design for humanity is to have that kind of connection with us. That is the point of creation for that love to be made. The ancients who wrote this story knew this. Paul knew it. You know, like I said, he wasn't married himself. And I hope that we can know it to the best of our ability and even more so as we're enabled by the Holy Spirit right here and now. But the ancients also knew that something was broken. Something did not go according to plan. How could a good God make all of this beauty and allow us to destroy it so often and as well as we do? How could, how could I treat my wife the way that I do when I'm reacting out of my hurt if I supposedly love her so much? Somehow things are not as they're meant to be. There must have been a choice somewhere, and we got it wrong. That's what the ancients were thinking. In Genesis, here again in chapter 2, a little earlier than before, saying to Adam, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Why would God do this? Why would this tree be planted in the garden at all? Love, that's why. God wanted lovers, not puppets. God needed a humanity that would choose love. And and there's an inherent risk in that creation, just like the inherent risk in any vulnerable love relationship. We do not know what will happen with what we make. We don't know what will happen with those drawings up there. We don't know what will happen with our children. Every father knows this uh, when when they worry at night about what will become of their children, and hopefully when they pray, they know something about the love of God the Father when they do that. Not because God the Father is like them, but because they are like God the Father. Their father love is reflective of the fatherly love that created all things. It says elsewhere in Ephesians that God is the father of fatherhood. We reflect that. God might have been, God might have been able to control what we do, but for love's sake, God chose not to. God set up all human relations in accordance with this pattern and at the heart of creation. The ancients knew this, and and that's why they tell this story. God gave us the power to choose for the sake of love, and in so doing, God took a great risk, like walking through a threshold that you don't know what's on the other side. 
He started something in motion that needed a lot of love to get to God's original purposes for it. God is kindling love and fidelity in every human heart and showing us the greatest expression of human love in Jesus Christ to get us where we're going, to constantly be coming around the edges and, and guiding us relentlessly so that we can make the kind of decision to make love happen. And risk just comes with that. To do all the mental backflips, to give God control in the way that I think totally contrasts with our own experience is what many theologians would have you do. Start with, okay, God's in control, because it says that in a couple passages. So if I start there, I'm going to have to do a lot of talking myself out of what love means. That, and that's the problem. I don't think God wants us to do that. I don't think we have to do those mental backflips. I think we can start with the love as experience in our real lives, with our children, with our lovers, with our friends, with our family, the ones that we need to survive right here. It's very hard to constantly be talking yourself out of what your lived experience is, and I don't think that God needs us to do that. It puts a much greater gulf between us and God than there actually is. God made us, and we are like God. And we are most like God, I think, when we create love, when we make that vulnerable connection, when we scorn the shame and and we love mutually as God loves us. Where does God's love end and our love begin if we're in the same kind of relationship that we know between human beings? Where does God receiving the, the tiny love that I can give end? And where does the, love, the tiny love that I'm giving begin? The same kind of mutuality, the same kind of, of joining together that Paul is talking about in Ephesians 5 and the ancients were talking about in Genesis 2. What do we make that God's responsible for? Every one of those pictures, oh my gosh, one of them is like perfect. I'm not going to point it out. They're all perfect. But one is like breathtaking. There's, there's definitely artists among us, but what, what, what did that beautiful artist make that that God isn't responsible for. It's impossible to say. God is in this with us from the beginning to the end. It takes risks to love like that. But God thinks you're worth it. Loving you and receiving love from you, which I've established is hard to separate, is worth the risk. And God's purpose for us is that we create that love in the world, that we make stuff that we make those connections happen. And Christ's promise is that when we do, we become the new creation with him. Let me pray and you can talk back. Creator, Father, Holy Spirit, Jesus, the mutuality that's at the heart of you is spread all over us and we're connected. We're a family. We love each other, even if it's, we're here for the first time. And we love you. And you love us. It's a great mystery. 
Thank you for making us more connected than we think. Thank you for the beautiful music of 10th Avenue North, too. They're working on it. I'd like to talk to them. Bless us as we try to live out of this love and trust you to bring about your purposes in us and with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.